if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Today, as you know, is Father's Day. And um, when I was raising, we have four kids. When I was raising our kids, uh, our third uh, in order was Catherine. And we were living in Seattle when she was learning to walk. And we had a split level. They don't have too many split levels around here, but we had a split level house. And that means you'd walk in the door and you could either go up the stairs to the first floor or you could go down the stairs to sort of the basement floor. And there was about 10 steps. We had wooden steps. And Kate uh, would learn that around 5 o'clock when I came home, when the door opened, Daddy was home. And she was so excited. She'd come tearing down the hall. She'd make a sharp left turn. And she would literally just launch herself off the steps into my waiting arm. She was so excited. It was, it was a great picture of faith, just this idea of, I know my dad will catch me. And, of course, the day came. <laughs> you can see it coming. You know, instead of going upstairs, I went downstairs. And, ah! No, that never happened, actually. She's still alive. She's still with us today. And uh, one of the things, I think, when we think of ourselves as dads, we want to sort of establish that we can be trusted and that we will catch our children. No matter what the situation is, no matter what places they go into, that we will catch them when they fall. We will catch them when they need encouragement. We'll catch them when they're going through tough seasons of life, that we're there for them. And uh, that's one of the things as dads, I think, that you know, we want to pride ourselves on is our ability to catch our kids. It was interesting. Earlier this week, woke up in the middle of the night thinking about something that took place 10 years ago. Had not really thought that much about it. And uh, it had to do with my oldest son. He was a graduating senior from high school. And uh, he had had sort of a rough spell through high school. And so part of that meant that he went to a military academy for a few months. And uh, he really did well there, and he decided that he was going to come back. He had his GED, but he decided he was going to come back and finish high school, which we were very proud that he was going to do that. So anyway, he came back for his senior year. He had missed six months, so he was trying to catch up all the schoolwork and graduate on time. He was also a great soccer player. In fact, he was the leading scorer on his high school soccer team. And uh, his senior year, his high school soccer team was ranked number one in the country. It was undefeated. It was an amazing team. And he was kind of the star of the team. Well, as the state finals were coming up, uh, he realized right the last week of school, a teacher came to him and said, you will not be able to graduate. You did not get enough units taken care of. He had thought he had. And so he decided to ditch a class. And he went down, actually, to study game film for the soccer uh, game. And the vice principal caught him and turned him in. And I had then a sit-down meeting with the principal, with my son, the principal, and uh, to talk about what should be done. And the principal said, we need to suspend your son for the state finals. And uh, I wanted to come across as a reasonable parent, as not overly protective. I didn't want to yell or sort of scream and carry on. And so we talked about it, and at the end of the meeting, uh, he basically said, you know, if you have nothing else to say, then this is how we're going to need to handle it. And my son missed that game. Their team lost in overtime, and it was brutal. It was brutal on my son. And you know why I woke up in the middle of the night? The thought occurred to me that I did not catch my son that day, that I had a chance to catch him, to argue for him, to defend him, to be silly maybe, to be, you know, 
illogical, but just in my son's corner. And I didn't do it that day. And what I realized is as dads, we are very human, aren't we? I mean, we want the best for our kids. We want to catch our kids every time that they fall. And there are times that we do, and we're so stoked when we do a good job with it. And there are times when we don't, when we just, you know, for whatever reason, we don't come through the way that we want to. And all it means is that we're very human, right? We do the best job we can. We're very human. And so I don't want to idolize the job of fatherhood, and I don't want to act like we never make mistakes, because of course we do. But I do want to say this. Dads, you are so important to us. The influence my dad had in my life, the influence I hope that I've had in my children's lives, I know several of you, the influence you have with your sons is amazing, and we couldn't do it without you. And so here's what I want to do is we're not going to spend the whole morning just talking about dads. We're going to talk about a different dad. But I want to just take a second and ask all of our fathers or grandfathers to stand. Would you please stand up? All right. Well, let's hear it for our dads. All right. Woo! And I want, to, uh, I want to pray for you. I want to ask God's blessing in your life and thank God for the work that you do. So if you're around, uh, these men extend a hand of blessing. You can put your hand on them if they're close enough for that. And let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for these men standing. I thank you for uh, really the incredible sacrifices that they've made that nobody else knows except for them, the things that they've let go of, the things that they have put to the side, the ways that they've come through when it was difficult. Thank you so much for that. I pray blessings in their life. I pray that they would have children that would appreciate them. I pray that they would feel the significance of the work they do as fathers. Lord, we pray that you will continue to work through us, that we will have an influence, whether it's with our children as they still are in the house or grandchildren down the line or just other children that aren't even ours but that we reach out to and that we love and we support. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be godly men that would have a great impact on the next generation. And again, I thank you so much for the dads that are here. I pray for those here that would love to become dads, and it's been difficult up to this point. I pray blessings on them. Help them. Help them to have children if, if that's their desire and that's your will for their life. And Lord, we continue to just ask you to guide us and to empower us as fathers. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you one challenge, dads. I'm going to give you encouragement to do one thing, and that is to push your children, to push your children, to push and encourage your grandchildren to put their trust in the one father who will never let them down. And as we uh, move now to the last part of chapter 3 of Ephesians, we learn some incredible things about this being called the Father. And it's interesting. Father, God is related to as Father. He's given that title more than any other title in the New Testament. 
It is Paul's favorite title in the letters that he writes as well. God is called a father. And in the, in the culture that Paul was writing in, fathers held a position in their family that was sort of unequal to anything that we understand today. Uh, even the most chauvinistic men uh, did not have it uh, so good as you did back in that culture. It really literally was true to say that the, the man was the king of the castle. The man ruled totally in his household. What he decided, the direction that he wanted to go, there was no pushback. It was not possible in that culture to push back. He literally had life and death powers over his children. He could, he could if he chose to, he could have them killed, uh, which, of course, wasn't very common back in that time. But that was the kind of power that he wielded. And so when this idea of God the Father is established, you need to understand that it's in a culture where to call someone father was really to understand the amount of power and influence that this person had in the household. And so, uh, so that, that's clearly in the minds of the people. Now, let me just ask you a couple of questions. And since we're in church, I think I know how you're going to answer this. All right, so... When we wonder if God the Father can catch us, there's two questions that would probably pop into our mind. The first one is, do you think that he is able to, that he's powerful enough, that when we get into a jam in our life, when we face a challenge, when something's going on, when there's a tough decision, do you think that God has the power, we're talking about the sovereign creator of the universe here, do you think that he has the power to catch you? How many of you would say, yeah, I think that he probably does? Okay. Good. Good answer. Good church answer. All right. Let's just ask another way on this. Okay. So he has the power. How many of you think that this God also has the love? In other words, this God who would not spare his son but send him to earth to die in our place on the cross, this, this father that listens to our prayers, this father that is intimate with us, how many of you think that this father probably loves us enough that he'd want to catch us? How many of you would say, yeah, I think that's probably true? Okay, good. All right. Well, so I don't really have any reason to speak today because you already believe all that. You live that way, I'm sure. You never, you never pull back and sort of think, well, what if God doesn't catch me this time? It's such an interesting thing, and I will be the first to tell you that it's true of me. I know in my head that God's got the power. I believe in my heart that he has the love. And yet so often when hard things hit me, when, when it becomes tough, when I face a difficult challenge, when I see something in my life that I feel like needs to get cleaned up, really about the last thing I do is go to my father and say, catch me. What I tend to do is say, no, I'll catch myself. I can figure this out. I can make this work. I don't need any help. If I've got a problem on the inside, I'll just clean it up. If I've got a, a problem on the outside, I'll just put my head down and power through it. I don't need any help. I don't need to be caught. And what Paul is going to tell us is when we have that attitude, we totally misunderstand this concept of God the Father, of the role that he wants to play in our life. All right, so open your Bibles. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. And we are going to start in verse 14, okay? And let me just tell you this. We're in this series called ID. 
And we're going through the book of Ephesians. And we are looking at the identity that God gives us. This is a turning point now time in the book. We're just about to end chapter 3, which means next week we're going to start... This is not a trick question. We're going to start chapter 4. Okay. But in Ephesians, there's a huge switch now as to the focus of the book. First three chapters are establishing our identity as children of the Father. And now, in the last four or three chapters, starting with chapter 4, it's going to focus on, so how do you act? In light of that, how do you act? So we're about to make a switch. So this is very important. It's the last thing Paul's going to talk about in establishing our identity. So you'll see that it's important from that standpoint. And we start by reading in verse 14. Uh, Let's read it out loud. It says this. For this reason... Okay, good. Now, in the future, we're going to read out loud in unison with a lot of confidence, right? Okay. That was sort of murmuring. Okay. Let me just explain a couple things. <coughs> As I explained, Father had sort of this special image, this idea that there was sort of the sovereignty about the Father in a household, and that certainly carried over to the idea of who God the Father was, this idea of being sovereign, totally in control, holds all things, holds all people, has absolute control over what happens. It's interesting, though. It says here that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from this father. When it says every family in heaven, it's probably talking about angels, good and bad angels. When it talks about every family on earth, obviously it's talking about all people. There is a sense that God is the father of all. Now, usually when the New Testament talks about God the father, it is only for believers. There's an intimacy that is also sort of implied by it. This is one of the very few times where it talks about God being the father of everyone, at least in the sense that he is the creator, that he is sovereign, that he controls things. And what we learn here is um, that our identity is formed by God's opinion about us, how God sees us. And this is a very interesting thing because usually we believe that our identity is formed by many other things. We think it's formed by the way we see ourselves, whether we think well of ourselves or poorly of ourselves. We think it's how other people think of us, you know, whether they think that we've got it together or they're happy with us or not happy with us. Um, Or it's just how the world sees it. And they tend to look at us sort of through perfection of what do we add? Are we big and beautiful and the best at what we do? And here we learn that our identity is actually formed by what our father thinks about us. It's his opinion that makes a difference. And we as children do well to always remember that, to remember that it's our heavenly father that forms our identity. It's to him that we should give the most weight when he says, this is who you are. Hey, does somebody have some water that I can... Would you just get a thing of water? That would be great. So, identity is formed by the Father. It's a really important part of this passage. And the idea here is you can fall into God's arms because this is your Father. He forms your identity. He's the one that can catch you because he catches everything. He's the one that catches everything. Now, as we look down 
In Ephesians 3, 16 through 17, this continues on. You're going to help me save my voice by reading this for me, okay? So starting in verse 16, it says, I pray that... (coughs) Great. Sometimes I wish those passages were longer. Okay. Now, there's a couple really important things that are focused here. Thank you for doing that. All right. I spilled. You're going to see the word power mentioned three times in what we're reading. This is the first time. Whenever the Bible talks about power, it's talking about limitless power. It's talking about the most sovereign, amazing power. It's talking about the power that created the world with a phrase, let there be light. It's talking about the power that, you know, spit out the stars and this amazing power that controls all things. That's always when it talks about God's power, that's the power you need to realize it's focusing on. Power and spirit are almost always connected. They're almost synonymous in the New Testament. So often when God talks about his spirit, right along with it, it talks about the power that comes from the spirit. And here again, we see this idea. We see the power and the spirit are connected to each other. Now, there's a really interesting thing. It says that this power comes out of his glorious riches. It's almost like there's this treasure chest of riches, God's treasure chest of riches, and his power just comes screaming out of it. It's out of this wealth of, of sort of sovereignty and power and control. You have this amazing power that God has. And it says that this power, which is so interesting, is being directed toward our inner being. Now, this is fascinating. Think about this for a second. When you pray for God to do something in your life, don't you tend to focus on your external circumstances? Don't your prayers sort of focus on change this with my finances? Change this with this person who's a problem in my life, like change the person or eliminate the person or, you know, whatever. Take care of that person. Change this with this business situation that I have. Change this with this problem in the neighborhood that's going on. I want you to externally change things and make my life better. But it's so interesting. Most of the time, when God unleashes his power, it is not toward the external. It's toward what? The internal, ourselves. He focuses on changing us. And that's exactly what's being said here, is this amazing power is focused on renovating us, on changing us from the inside out. That's, that's the point that God is making here. It's, I want to change you. And it's, it's so interesting that he goes, you know, I need all my power to change you. I don't need all my power to change all those external things, like to create a universe. That's not a big deal. But to change you, man, that's going to take some work to renovate you, to change your heart. There was a little booklet that came out when I was actually a young Christian. So this was a while back, and it was called My Heart, Christ's Home. Any of you ever remember seeing that little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home? Okay, not too many of you. Okay, all right. So it was a while back. 
But it was a little booklet, and it really illustrated this text, actually, this passage, the idea of Jesus dwelling in our heart. And it had just sort of this picture that Jesus is like this guest that we've invited over to our house, and he goes through every room of our house basically saying, would you allow me to live in this part of your life, in this part of your house? And so he'd go into the kitchen, and the kitchen kind of represented uh, our appetites, and it, it represented kind of how we, you know, maneuver with the natural appetites of our life. And Jesus was saying, well, will you let me be the Lord of this part of your life? And so there's a little discussion about that. And then you go to the next chapter, and the next chapter is the bedroom. And the bedroom sort of represents our sexuality. And the idea here was, will you let me, you know, sort of move in and guide you in your sexuality and the way that you handle your, you know, your sex life and, and all the things that are attached to that? And then after that, it went into the family room. And the question was, will you allow me to sort of move with your family and have an impact in your family and, and uh, govern you as you interact, you know, in the role that you play in your family? And then going into the den was sort of the office, and this represented your business life. Will you let me impact your business life and direct you in these kinds of ways? And uh, he, so room by room, he would go through. And then finally, at the end, there is this closet, if you've seen the little booklet, and it's a closet that you've locked. And you've basically given him reign in all these areas of your life, but there's this one closet, this one issue. It's like, I don't want you to play with that. I don't want you to touch that. And Jesus comes up and he tries the door and he goes, you know, can I have the key to this? And you're like, no, you can't have the key to that. You know, I have to save one part for just myself. And he's standing by the door and he goes, you know, it kind of stinks. It's like there's a smell coming out of there. It's like something's rotting inside of there. And you're like, you know, you should just get away from that door. Just, you know, leave that alone. That's mine. And there's this big battle at the end, you know, are you going to let him into that one closet, that one area of your life that's secret? Maybe nobody else knows about it. You wish Jesus would leave it alone. And Jesus is standing there and saying, listen, there is a power here to transform you. But you need to give me the keys of every door. And, of course, in the book, booklet, the good news is God gives him the key, cleans out the closet, and really now his heart is Christ's home. And it was an interesting book. It stuck with me for years and years and years. But here's the thing that's so important. The book sort of implies that it's our job to clean things up for Jesus. And is that what this passage teaches? Is it our job to clean things up? No. It's the power of the Spirit that renovates us, that cleans us up, that changes us from the inside out, that God does this amazing work. Now, we partner with him. We can't, you know, be against that. But God changes us. And so when flat sides of your life are revealed to you, and we're, we're so, you know, hesitant to admit that we've got flat sides, but if we're honest, we admit, yeah, you know what, I kind of have a temper problem. I sort of have an issue in this area of my life, maybe with some habits that are bad habits, or these kinds of relationships I don't handle very well. And when those are revealed to us, what's our attitude? Do we think, you know what, i got to clean this up. i got to make this better for God. Because what God tells us is, you don't have the power to do that. That's power that I give you. That's the power of the Spirit. That's me coming in 
working in partnership with you, but we change that together. That's what it means to let God catch you, to fall into his arms. As we read on, we go to Ephesians chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. So read this for me, would you please? It starts, and I pray that you... All right. Now, we get the second use of power here. And this is really interesting because this power doesn't have to do with, like, lifting things or even changing things. This power has to do with understanding something. Now, look at the verse. What is it that we don't naturally have the ability to understand and God actually has to give us the power to comprehend it? What is it in here? Love, right? It says love. How wide and long and deep and high is this love? It's incomprehensible. And yet Paul says here, for you to understand it at all, you can't do it on your own. It's so amazing. It's so beyond anything you could ever grasp. God's got to give you the power to understand it. Now this word, love, is agape. Many of you are familiar. Agape is the highest form of love. It is unconditional. What it says is it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you feel about me. It doesn't matter how many times you've messed up. I will love you. I will always seek your best. You know, your health, your wholeness will be something that I'm always, I will always be in your corner. That's what agape love means. Agape love is the kind of love that the Father gives us. And the closest thing we have to it, moms and dads, is the love we give our children, right? Or the love that you receive from your parents. This unconditional love. Even in humans, we have sort of this ability to say, no matter how much you screw up, no matter how much you hurt me, no matter how far you fall short of your potential, I will love you. I will always be in your corner. I am always for you. And that's the love that's talked about here. And Paul basically can't even describe it. He just goes, how high, how long, how deep? You know, this idea that it is just beyond what you can imagine. How great this love is. And Paul's answering the question, does God love you enough to catch you? The answer is, of course he loves you enough to catch you. He loves you beyond what you can imagine. And there's this wonderful phrase at the end. It talks about, I think he's going to fill, you're going to be filled in the measure of all the fullness of God. And uh, what I was thinking about is years ago, Julie and I went to Hawaii with some friends, and we were in Maui, and we went to a place called Swan Court. Have any of you ever been to Swan Court in, I don't even know, it's somewhere in Maui. It was long enough ago. It's one of, yeah, on one of the islands. None of you have been to Swan Court? Is it still, like, open? Okay, fine. <clears throat> well, let me tell you what it's all about. Swan Court has this amazing breakfast buffet. They, you come in, they open up these doors, and you're looking out, way out onto the ocean. But closer in, they've got like these ponds, and there's all these swans swimming around in it. In fact, that's probably the coincidence of why they call it Swan Court. 
Anyway, they have these, pot, these swans. It's just a beautiful setting. And the food is amazing. And I'm a breakfast guy, so I loved it. And you go in, and they have Belgian waffles, and they have this gourmet French toast. And they have just, you know, bacon and sausage and everything that you can think of. And it's a buffet. You can eat as much as you want. And back in that day, I'd never been to anything like that. They had this quality of food and this much of it. And I remember just sitting there just saying, I never want to leave this place. This is so great. And so I was like as full as I could be. And I just kept on going back for more. Because it, I, I was being filled with the fullness. And this is kind of the picture that God gives us here. Is that he keeps filling us. He just fills us over and over with his perfection. He fills us with his love. He fills us with his joy. He fills us with his peace. It just keeps on coming over and over and over again. And you get filled up more and more. And when you think you can't take any more, he comes by and he goes, how about going back? you know, for fifths. How about getting more? You're going to be filled with the fullness. That's the idea here. It's just filled with the fullness. The idea of God's love is incomprehensible, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, how much it could never be the case that he just let you drop. He would just never do that. And finally, Paul ends with one of the greatest statements in the New Testament, and uh, if you have your Bibles and uh, you haven't done it, you may want to underline this because this is an amazing statement. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Let's read it together. It says, Now, All right. So we get our third use of power here. And again, look at where the power is focused. But let's just talk about this power one more time. It says here that this power means that he is able, right? He is able. But it doesn't stop there. Paul needs to sort of add something to that. So he's powerful uh, to do all. So he puts all on it to say, I just want to broaden this. He's able to do, to, to, to do everything, all. But he doesn't stop there. But because he, he, then he says, well, actually, he's, he does more than all. And in fact, then he says, he wants to qualify that. So he says, in fact, it's so much, it's more than you could, what does it say, ask or even imagine. I mean, I can imagine a lot. And then finally, he's still not done, and he says, in fact, he does immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. In other words, Paul almost can't contain himself when he talks about what God does for you. <coughs> In the context of what we're talking about, of how reliable he is as a catcher here, that he's able to catch you in any situation. And so here's what I want you to get as we wrap up. God is able. God is able. Why don't you say it with me? God is able. Again, God is able. So let's just look what God has done. And your, your response is always going to be, God is able. 
Okay? That's the response. So he looked, and there was nothing made. And then with a phrase, he created the heavens and the earth because God is able. Two million Jews were in captivity in Egypt, had no hope of getting out. And God, through a series of miracles, led them to freedom because God is able. They came to the Red Sea, and they had the Egyptian army coming down on their back, and they were going to be ripped to pieces. And then all of a sudden, the Red Sea opened because God is able. They came to the promised land, and there was this huge city on the border, Jericho, had these huge walls. They looked, and they said, we'll never be able to get past the city. We can't take the promised land. And yet God, in a miraculous way, said, just march around the city and blow a trumpet. And the trumpet was blown, and the walls fell because God is able, right? God is able. There was a giant that was basically making fun of the Israel army. And no man would go out to fight this giant named Goliath. And God said, I won't stand for this. And he rose up a little boy, a little shepherd boy named David, and all he had is a slingshot. And you know what? That slingshot brought down the giant because God is able, right? God is able. And there was a time where Daniel, living in a foreign country, is standing for God, and so he's thrown into a lion's den. And God closes the lion's mouth because God is able. And we see Jesus come on the scene, and he heals the sick. And he lets the blind see, and the cripples can walk, because God is able. And I know a marriage that was falling apart. And the two people had sort of been Christians, but not really. And they finally decided our last chance is really to make a work of this. They went, and they really invested themselves in their relationship with Christ. And their marriage turned around. And they have a great marriage now. And that's because God is able. And I knew somebody that was addicted to pornography. It was so much controlling his life that he, he just couldn't maneuver at all. It was ruining his life. He had lost his family. And then he came to Christ and he said, you've got to help me with this. You've got to change me from the inside out. And God did. Because God is able. God is able. God is able to do these things. I knew a family that was blowing apart because their kids were just out of control. And so the mom and the dad finally said, we've got to start raising them the way that God wants. And they started going to church and they started doing things. And that family has come together because God is able. Here is the question you need to answer. Is God able for you? Is God able for you? I want us to close with a time of reflection. And I'm going to bring four images up onto the screen. And with each image, <coughs> I'm going to sort of describe a problem that we can have, a problem that we face. And I want you to ask the question, if that problem is something you can relate to, if you really believe God is able, if he's powerful enough, if he loves you enough, 
if he will actually catch you. So the first image. You're going through a tough decision. You kind of know what's right to do, maybe what God wants you to do, but you think, you know, if I go down that road, it is going to be so hard. If I stand for my right convictions at work, I could get fired. If I try to get through this without just shading the truth a little bit, I'm going to catch so much crap from this other person. It'd be so much easier just not to tell the full truth, just to shade it just a little. Are you going through a tough decision? And what you're really doing is asking the question, can I trust God? Is he able to walk me through this? Can I cling to him and do it his way? And he will carry me through this. Some of you, that's exactly where you are. You've got a decision. And you're going back and forth. Or maybe you've made the wrong decision. God's saying you can make that right. I'm able. Trust me. I will catch you. Second image. There come times in our life where we are undone. Maybe it's when we recognize, you know what? I am really imperfect. I try hard to clean myself up, and I just keep falling in the mud. I just keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. Or maybe your world is sort of caved in, and you're like, I just don't have the strength to move. I can't push against this anymore. And God says, finally, finally you know. You can't do it without me. And I want to take care of you. And I want you to curl up my powerful hand. And I will carry you through this. You're going to make it. And for some of you, that's exactly where you are right now. That's exactly how you're feeling. You barely could get to church today. And you came because this is what God wanted to tell you. I will catch you. You can trust me. Lay down in my arms. The next image. Are you facing a challenge? Something that is overwhelming. Maybe it's an opportunity, but you're overwhelmed with this opportunity. It's a good thing, but you don't know how you can do it. Maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe you never asked for this, and now you're in a life that you said, I never signed up for this, and I can barely make this through. And you have a significant challenge, and your, your natural way of handling this is to put your head down and to say, I'm just going to have to work that much harder. I'm going to have to pull this together. And here God is saying, why don't you put your arms up to me and let me hold you? Why don't you give this over to me and see what I can do with it? You don't go through this alone. I've got you. I've got your back. I'm catching you. 
For some of you, that's exactly what's happening today. And then I actually like this last image the most. You know, that is the posture of a child of God. Because no matter how bleak and how bad, no matter how hard, no matter how much we mess up, the amazing truth of the matter is we win. We win. Our Father guarantees we win. You win. In the end, you win. In the end, it all works. In the end, you become everything God wants you to be. In the end, all of your relationships come together. In the end, you are totally successful. In the end, you win. That's what it means to have God as your father. You win in the end. You win. And for some of you, you just need to know that. I win. I win. I win. Listen, I want to pray for you. Would you stand? And let me just pray for you. Father, we come to you. And you are there. And we lift our hands. And you hold us. And we curl up and you catch us. We ask for guidance and you lead us. You are a good father. You are a father who always catches us. And we pray, Lord, that this week, as we go through our week, that we remember this, that we'd be reminded, and again and again, we'd fall back into your arms, recognizing that you catch us. Our identity is that we are a child of God. It is the it really is the only thing that needs to be known about it. We are your child. We have your power and your love covering us. And Lord, as a human father, I thank you that I can lean on you as my heavenly father. Help me to teach my kids that. Now, Lord, as we prepare uh, for this week as we prepare for our next steps. <coughs> Let us know you are our Father. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.